0: Welcome to The Aggressive Life. On this day, about 500 some odd years ago, a seismic shift, well, I could say in the universe, that might be a little overplay, but at least in the known world, a seismic shift rippled out from a little town in Germany and the world would never be the same. On October 31st, 1517, a Catholic monk and scholar marched up the doors of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed something to the door. Who was that man? Well, this man has had a lot of followers. One guy, one one American black pastor went over to Germany, learned out about this guy, and he changed his name. He changed his name. He was so inspired. He changed his name to Martin Luther. And then he had a child. He named his son Martin Luther King. Junior, I've become a bit of a Martin Luther guy. One of the most aggressive people who's ever walked the face of the earth, and I want to talk about him today. I want to talk about him with the guy who has taken my understanding of him to a new level. The guy I'm going to have on today, his name is Stu Bamig. Uh He's a longer term friend of mine. I use the term friend loosely because uh, I just wasn't in his league for a long, long time. He's a little older than me. He was at the church that. Uh, helped train me into student ministry way, way, way back in the late 80s. He's a pioneer in church planting and church growth and a certain kind of church. And I've always looked up to him and didn't have much of a personal relationship, but I've gotten more personal with him here over the last year. Uh, Stu Bamig is known by me as Stuby because anybody who I like and I know, you get a little nickname. So <laughs> Stuby, his name is Stuby. I was at a funeral for the guy who led me to Christ. His name was Denny Patton. And Stu knew uh, Denny, who's been on the, who was on his podcast while he was alive. And Stu said, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to Germany, and I'm leading a trip to do Martin Luther. You ought to come. And I thought about it, and I thought, it's been a while since I've been on a learning expedition. And I said, okay, yeah, I'm going to do that. So Lib and I went, and I had some friends that went as well. And oh, my gosh, it was unfreaking believable. So unbelievable, I said, Stuby, we need to have you on The Aggressive Life. Let's talk Germany. Let's talk Martin Luther. Let's talk aggressive stuff because he is an aggressive man. Welcome to The Aggressive Life, Stu Bamig. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Fill us in on why and how you got interested in Luther.
1: I grew up in a, a Lutheran family. And uh, when I was in high school, in my uh, junior and senior year, I had to go to confirmation class every Saturday, and I studied the catechism of Martin Luther that he had written. So I went through this thing for two years, finally got confirmed, put a white bathrobe on, you know, stood up in front of the church. It was confirmation Sunday, big deal. I never heard about a personal relationship with Jesus, not one single time. The greatest story I'd ever told, greatest adventure I've ever lived, went through Luther's catechism and my pastor never, ever mentioned anything about a personal relationship with Jesus. So I get involved in a youth ministry where I do come to faith in Jesus. And then I get involved with a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. When I was a college student, he took an interest in me. R.C. founded uh, Ligonier Ministries and, uh, and encouraged me to go to seminary and took a real interest in me. And he, he gave me this book, Here I Stand by Roland Bainton. It's the life of Martin Luther. And I read it. It knocked me over. And uh, so much so that I decided that I was going to go and walk the steps of Martin Luther. Now, there's a problem with the whole Protestant Reformation and the whole life of Martin Luther. And that's this it was buried for 40 years behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany, in the GDR days, the German Democratic Republic. Not only 40 years uh, buried there, but it was buried under the regime of regime of uh, Adolf Hitler going from 1938 on through the end of World War II. i got to get in there. i got to figure out a way to get into that country. And I applied to our government for a visa of a learning uh, grant to be able to travel over there. And finally, after six months of working on this thing, crossed the border into East Germany as an American. Couldn't take any magazines with me, no newspapers, no Bible, nothing, just a backpack and uh, a duffel bag. And I was going to go in there and I was going to find the life of Martin Luther. Hey, Brian, this this for me was a bold move. I'm going to be cut off for two weeks from the known world. I'm going to turn my passport in every three or four hours or whatever city I go to, to the Stasi, to the, the police there. They're going to hold it. They're going to tell me where I can go, what I can do and when I should be back. I remember crossing the uh The border into East Germany. I was detained there for two hours with soldiers with automatic rifles and dogs on the train rifling through my stuff, intimidating me. So uh, finally, I get in there, and and I want to find the places of Luther, but they're all locked up. They're all buried up. They saw Luther as a social reformer uh, at this time, the Soviet Union. I climb over the wall because I can't get in. I want to see the cell where Luther was. I climb over the wall by myself, and and when I was there, talking talk about bold moments, I, you know, right there on the, in the chapel is a gravestone laying flat in front of the altar of Johann Zacharias, who killed John Huss, who was a forerunner of Luther a hundred years earlier. He burned him. And that bishop's grave is right there in front of the altar. And Luther laid on it to be ordained with his arms outstretched in the form of a cross. And I, I... Middle of February 1988, in a country filled with Soviet and East German police, I laid on that tomb face down in the form of a cross. And that was a defining moment for me. My life at that time was completely out of control, out of touch with my known world, my family, my friends. And at that time in my life, I'm experiencing these anxiety attacks, these panic attacks that would just sweep over me. And I'd never knew when they would hit but when they would they would paralyze me but I was so convinced I wanted to walk into the steps of Luther that I said the heck with the panic attacks the heck with the I can do I can do anything for two weeks I can survive it so I went over there to walk in his steps now why do we travel to places when, when today we could google them why do you go to the holy land why do we go to East Germany I think It's because God created us as physical beings, and and we want to be surrounded by the sights and the sounds and the smells. We want to touch things. We want to walk in the footsteps. We want to know what it was like to be there because all of that stuff is still there. And when we visit St. Mary's Cathedral high up on the hill in Erfurt over this little town of two-story buildings, and you'll see how the Catholic Church built this great monument. you got to climb all these steps to get up there. I want to stand in that square and look up and see the awe and the power of the Catholic Church in 1517. I want to see the scale of the church, the scale of the village. So I wanted to go there. And I think it's important for us to go to the places where God changed history. And ever since then, God changed my life. And I've been sharing that story and that place and those places with people since then. So, yeah, why did I get into that? Through R.C. Sproul, uh, the book uh, by Roland Bainton, Here I Stand, and my quest to want to stand in the places as a human being
0: where God changed history. You gave a bit of that story uh, on day one when we went over, and I had no idea of the history of you actually going on a literal adventure. I'm, I like adventures, right? But my adventures are a bit more curated because I don't have to cross political lines and I might not get, probably not get a shot unless some hunter is a bad shot from another away county away with a high power rifle, right? I just was so mesmerized. Like, my goodness, you're just going to go, I'm going to go behind the iron curtain and I'm going to find things and I'm going to look for things that are buried. Uh, that, Man, that was an aggressive move. I knew when you told that story, I'm with the right guy on the right trip. Yeah, many of us don't know the life of Luther, or we've forgotten about it, or um, we don't see any relevance to it. And as we talk about this, there's going to a lot. Of, there might be a lot of Catholic talk. Let's just make sure we understand this right now. That up until 1517, 1550, 1580, whatever, in that in that time period, if you were a believer, you were Catholic everybody was Catholic. This isn't like cracking on the Catholic church. This is more like cracking on the history of Christianity, the way all of us were. And uh, and whenever Catholicism maybe comes up in this podcast, if it does, uh, we'll get into this, that there are abuses inside of Protestantism that Luther probably would have spoken out against. So this is not like a... The Reformation for me isn't an anti-Catholic thing. The Reformation is an anti-religiosity thing, how we sometimes lose our way. So would you agree with that, Stu?
1: Yeah, I think it's exactly right. When we talk about Roman Catholicism and a Lutheran trip, we're talking about what it was like in the 15th century. It was extremely corrupt. There are great things happening in the Catholic Church today, but we're talking about 1500s Catholicism. And uh, I think that's important because I think the trends of the Catholic Church in the 1500s are the same trends that take place with people today. We're trying to work our way into heaven. It's just that simple. And the church was trying to convince people to work their way into heaven. And I believe that same message is out there today. You know, um, I was involved in an evangelism explosion. It was an evangelism movement uh, way back when. And there's a great question in there. Uh, It says that we ask people, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And most people say, well, I think because I'm trying to be a good person you know, and I believe in the general notion that God exists, and I'm doing the best I can. And that's the same kind of answer the Catholic Church was giving in the 1500s, which was not good enough for Martin
0: Luther. The story of Luther, what he's most known for is, uh, at least the beginning of the story, is the 95 Theses. He's a Catholic priest. He nails 95 ideas to a to a door, which is basically the town bulletin board, where he's just saying, "Hey, let's uh, let's think about these things." I'm, I'm I'm curious how this thing goes. And printing press is just is just invented, and they're looking for content. There's no copyright laws. Printer just takes them, just starts distributing them, and all of a sudden, a movement is underway. And the heart of what we know about that was indulgences. Tell us what indulgences were, and what Luther was raising the alarm flag on.
1: Yeah, but let me step back and give a framework
0: for
1: Good, Luther. Great. I think. Yep. that uh, that puts his life and his stance into context. Here's what I see when we take this trip. We talk about what we call lightning bolt moments. There are moments when God unexpectedly changes the direction of our life. They just sort of knock us off our feet, and we're never again the same. And we're not expecting those. They sort of ambush us. And he had these lightning bolt experiences. One of those is the 95 thesis that he takes and nails on the Castle Church in Wittenberg. I look for those lightning bolt moments in our lives when God ambushes us unexpectedly. I look for the here I stand moments. These are the defining moments when we say yes to God. And the reason that phrase here I stand has stuck is because it says everything about our faith, that faith doesn't come without a cost, that he suffered greatly. He didn't allow his fears to stop him. Faith is an action. If we say that Martin Luther is a man of faith, how do we know that? I mean, if we opened him up, would we find faith in there anywhere? The way we know that is by what he did. He made decisions, and then he acted on them. This is really true. I really believe in this God and what he said. And he was acting, and it was an action that wasn't without fear. Luther had panic attacks as well. He called them ang where he struggled with the spirit and his body and his mind. Uh... And, and, and he said that not only, not only does that kind of brokenness and that kind of fear and that anxiety, not only does it happen to us in our lives, but, he said, it is necessary for us to come to a true understanding of who God is. That is where God speaks to us, on our knees. And then we talk about these holy moments that Luther experienced, where we get unexpectedly ambushed by God to enter into his presence in a way we've never known before laying on the grave of uh, Johannes Zacharias in the freezing cold in front of the altar where Luther was ordained was a holy moment for me. I can remember that moment to this day. I'll never forget it. It sort of gets to the heart of the matter of who we are and what's important to us. I just want to paint that picture of the lightning bolt, the here I stand moments and the holy moments as we get into the weeds. So indulgences. Okay. Okay. Uh, we did a disclaimer about we're talking about the church in the 1500s they believed in three things one purgatory you have to understand these concepts they had a council and they and the, at the council they decided that the church would teach that all who die are still imperfect and they go through the process of purification now certain saints clergy go directly to heaven they've already been purified but most of us all of us the vast majority of us we go to purgatory to be purified. To enter into heaven, we have to possess what is called inherent righteousness. That is that we must actually be righteous, be perfect. The church got this from uh, Matthew five forty eight, where Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That when he was asked, what does it take for me to get into heaven? He said, be perfect as God is perfect. So the ultimate question of all history is how do flawed people who have made bad mistakes and bad decisions enter into the presence of a holy God without that holy God being infected or tainted by our fallenness. So the church says, well, the way we do that is we get purified. We we get rid of our fallenness. The church taught that immediately after death, we enter into this intermediate state of purgatory. And the purpose of being there is purification. It's a cleansing by fire. It's sort of a holding tank. And you could spend, Brian, this is amazing, you could spend 10,000 years there waiting for enough merit or goodness to get out of purgatory. And this terrified Luther. He was filled with guilt and fear and anger. One of the priests asked him one time, Luther, do you, do you love God? He said, love God. I hate God. I fear God. I'm angry at God. He's going to send me to purgatory. So the question becomes, how do you get out of purgatory? And that's the second concept, indulgences. The primary means of reducing the amount of punishment in purgatory is by a purchase of indulgences as a means of purification. Hey, keep in mind, this all didn't have to make sense logically. It's what the church taught. And people just believe. Oh, and they've got so, no, they've got no Bible
0: to read. The average person doesn't have the, have a, and right. even even the priests, they're they're mainly preaching or speaking from Latin. The people, the people don't know Latin, so it's not like, wait a minute, Romans three twenty three says th- there's none of that.
1: Yeah, no, and and, and as you know, ninety five percent of the population is illiterate anyway, and they're only hearing the message if it's preached at all in Latin. So they are clueless. So they're told about the this purgatory concept. So, so where do the indulgences come from? They come, third concept, from the treasury of merit, that Jesus and Mary and certain saints were so perfect that they stored up extra grace, more than they needed. And Jesus appointed the church under Peter to have the keys of the kingdom, the authority to draw from this treasury or a collection of merit to reduce punishment. And Luther just could not allow his people to live under that kind of misleading by the church. It really angered him that the church was teaching this concept. So that's the concept of indulgences. And we still, you know, today we still look for ways to buy our way into heaven, right? Make deals with God, do good things, be, be uh, uh, a good person. Maybe that's going to be good enough to get me into heaven. Luther's problem was he said, how good is good enough? And his answer was righteousness, perfection purity. And he realized, if I were to get to heaven, I can't be righteous. I can't be pure. I can't live without mistakes. He kept going to confession, and they kept saying to him, you're too serious about all this confessing of your sins. But Luther said, I know, but I have to get purified in, in this in this world. And finally, one time in his cell, one one night, he said, you know, I, I realized if I have to get to heaven, I would need a savior. And that's exactly what God Provided,
0: yeah, he wasn't this guy who was rebellious, wanted to rebel against the Catholic Church. I mean, he was an ardent follower of the Church that day. He was, he was, he was in the elite, if you will, as a priest. He he just took it more seriously than anybody else, and he would punish himself and flog himself and walk up and down steps on his knees more than anybody else to try to purify himself. This wasn't a guy who's like tisk tisk, I don't believe this stuff. He believed it. He went after it. And then he finally realizes, man, maybe what I'm going after is wrong. And he puts those 95 theses up on the door and a movement is born. What happens after that point, Stuby?
1: Uh, he puts the 95 thesis on the door in Latin as a debate process. In other words, if you wanted to have a debate, you'd put your debate uh, qualifications of what you wanted to deb- debate on a door. The castle church door was sort of the bulletin board of the day. And he challenged uh, the professors at the University of Wittenberg to a debate on indulgences. This fellow, Tetzel, was coming into town with pomp and glory and with the seal of the Pope and with this treasure chest of uh, uh, merit. And he was selling people this stuff, not in not in Wittenberg, because he wasn't allowed there because uh, Lecter wouldn't allow him in Wittenberg. But Luther's people were going to the other villages so that they could buy these indulgences for their family members who were in purgatory, the t- uh Tetzel said, you, you know, put your ear to the ground. You can hear that little daughter of yours that died four years ago. Uh, she's screaming and begging for you to get her out of purgatory. And Tetzel's saying, here, make a contribution. I'll give you a piece of paper, stamp of the Pope on it. You can get her out of purgatory. He is, uh, he is violently upset at the church being robbed uh, of their money, these poor German peasants. And primarily, Pope Leo X is sending Tetzel to Germany to raise this money to do what? to build St. Peter's Cathedral. Well, Luther was just obsessed with stopping that process. He said, I'd rather give the money to to the poor than to build a great cathedral. So yeah, when when they nailed those theses up there, uh, someone copied it in Latin. They translated it into German. They got it to the printing presses of Gutenberg. Man, it spread like wildfire in German throughout Europe. The people were saying, you mean we might be free? We don't have to go through this whole church process. We just don't have to use indulgences anymore and and turn over our hard-earned money to the church. So, yeah, he set up—he never wanted a a revolution,
0: but he did want to change certain little things in the church to get it back on track. Let's pause the Luther discussion for just a moment. Let's let's talk about common church. I mean, it's easy to to just crack on the church of yesterday or something like that, but I find the temptation— to be very real, what the Catholic Church was doing way back when, like any pastor I know, just about any pastor I love, I know would love to tell people, if you don't serve in the children's ministry, hell is a real possibility for you. <laughs> you know, because children's yeah. ministry, volunteer. We would love, we would love to go. We love to say, like, hey, man, tithing is a big deal. Maybe we're not selling indulgences to build our buildings, but there's a lot of guys, man, to get right in the edge and in order to build their buildings or meet their budget, they preach tithing as if it was indulgences because they make it inextricably lick with your faith. So I th- I feel the temptations uh, in the modern church to abuse people. I don't think that I am. I really don't. Uh, but I can understand the temptation that was there. You come from this world. You were – tell us a little bit of your story in church, what that was like for you because um, – You've uh, you got a pretty interesting one there.
1: Yeah, I had been uh, ordained in the Anglican Church, had a great, where you were uh, under John Guest, was the senior rector. And uh, all of a sudden, God had this renewal kind of movement taking place in our church where the Holy Spirit was moving. And we just sort of got in, in our inner tubes and floated down the stream. I mean, it was a really amazing time of ministry in my life. But I got, I went out to Fuller Seminary to do a doctor's of ministry degree in church growth. And a uh, guy out there, Peter Wagner, said, you know, uh, the greatest way to expand the church is through church planting, is through new churches. This was Paul's method, start new churches. You can grow the church through biological growth, just having more and more kids. You can grow the church by reshuffling the deck. You know, people from small churches go to big churches. But the real way to grow the church is through conversion growth. And so I wanted to go reach new people. And I realized the church that I was in was not designed to reach non-believing People. It was designed for those who were already convinced, the already convinced believer. I decided to start this church after a lot of prayer with nine families in a growing area of Pittsburgh. Man, it grew like wildfire. Uh, I I went up to uh, to uh, uh, Chicago and I ran into this Willow Creek movement and this this church uh, in a black box, and that really fit me because I'd already had a band and I was already trying to modern church do. Uh, ministry in a way that people could understand. I realized, as Luther did, that music is the key to people's hearts. So we really built a church designed around music and creative arts and a preaching of the gospel message. So I start this church and it grows like wildfire. Back in that day, it was the largest church between New York and Chicago. Yeah. And we were we we're really the first church that had, in that area, that region, had drums in the church. In fact, yeah. I remember uh, the first time we had the drums. My, my, one of my board members came to me and says, we'll never do that again. Get those drums <laughs> out of here. The church grew. And I remember then, and I was 18 years into the church, for, for the last three years, 15th to the 18th year I was in the church, i have been going to my board and saying, I'm not doing well. In the 18th year, we had uh, Christmas Eve services, and we had them four or five days in advance. And then on Christmas Eve, we had them at 11, 3, 5, 7, 9, mm-hmm. uh, I, I went home. The kids were in bed. My wife's in bed. I'm in. It's Christmas Eve. I've never spent a Christmas Eve with my kids in 18 years because I was always at the church. And I, I, I'm sitting in the living room, and I turn the TV on. To, and, and the only thing on is the is the, you know, church services. So I just come from 11 of them. We had 10,000 people attend church, which at that time was really a lot of people.
0: Well, at any, any time Eve that's services. a lot of people, especially in Pittsburgh at that time. Yeah.
1: yeah. And here's the deal. I, I curl up in a little ball on the floor and, and I'm saying, you know, I was with uh, just with 10,000 people. I I feel like I didn't know any of them. Putting on a show. I'm in a toilet bowl and I feel like the loneliest person alive. And then I knew I was in trouble preaching with my gas tank spiritually on empty. so my board, I finally went to the board and said, that's it, I can't do anymore. And and they said, yeah, and you're making some bad decisions. So, you know, we concur with that. We're gonna send you out to Henry Cloud, wrote the book Boundaries for 10 days for burned out executives. So I get out there, I'm in a little small group of about uh, nine people, 10 people. We don't tell what we've done in our lives, but we share really who we are and what we're struggling with and, and where we find ourselves. And I find out that in the middle of the week, they they bring in this psychodrama person who's been listening to our stories, and she's going to have us act out where she thinks we are. And I'm going, There's no way. I'm, you know, I'm Stu Bainey, man. I, I I was a pastor of a big church. I'm not acting out some
0: stupid I pay people to act. I pay, people to act. People, I I pay people to act. I don't act yeah. myself. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to do that. You're going to be kidding me. Man, I'm too proud for that.
1: So- the first act was a, a woman, a woman executive, and uh, the lady had a, her uh, guy take hold of her ankle, and she dragged him around the room. And she said, after listening to your story of your life, this is your father that's holding your ankle, and you're dragging him around, and you've got to release him and let go. I thought, well, that's 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 you know that's pretty cool. So she gets to me, right? She puts a chair in the middle of the room, and she says, uh, get up on the chair. Stand on the chair. It's a folding chair and then she gets three people on the right side of me and she says this is the winner circle you've been trying all your life to get into the winner's circle and you can't get into it then she takes three people and she puts them below the chair on their knees facing upward with their arms outstretched and she said this is the acclamation society these are the people that are saying to you you're wonderful you're great we love your preaching we love your sermons We've become Christians because of you. You've changed our family. You've changed our kids. We owe everything to you. And this is just pure adoration, you know, three people. And then there's three people on my left, and they're on their knees with their arms around each other, and they're crying, and they're holding each other. And she said, now this is the Broken People's Club. They've been wounded. They're hurt. They will minister and live the rest of their lives out of their Brokenness. Then she said to me, I want you to get off that chair and I want you to join one of these groups for the rest of your life. And I made a beeline to that broken people's club. She said to me, and they put their arms around me and we're all crying. And she said, You will be a member of this club. For the rest of your life, and I want you to go home and tell your children that, as well. And I found out that day that much like Luther, maybe we could talk about his brokenness. I would I would live and minister out of my brokenness. I, I remember telling our church uh, years earlier. This is how whacked out you can get as a pastor. Mm-hmm. If I didn't give a message this morning, but if I took the next. 45 minutes, and had you all come up here and give 15 minutes of your greatest success story and go to your seat, I'll bet you all of us would walk out of here feeling like a failure. Because success stories, winning stories, make us feel like failures. They divide us, they alienate us. But if I had each of you come up here and tell your greatest moment of brokenness, your failure stories, you know, the broken wedding ring or torn up credit card, whatever it is, I'll bet you we'd all stay here hugging and holding each other for as long as it took to put each other back together. There's something about brokenness and failure that unites us and brings us together. And that, that you know, I preached that. It made sense. People said, amen, brother. But it hadn't happened to me. You know, that's how crazy we get in the ministry. We could, we could preach stuff. We get good at saying stuff. But then God's going to bring that sledgehammer, lightning bolt moment and knock us off
0: our feet. Yeah, we say, we say stuff, but we don't live stuff. I get I get I get yeah. on our staff all yes. the time and said, Look, man, I'm sick of this saying doing gap. We set these goals, we say we're gonna do these things, but then if you look at the next six months, the next year, we don't do these things. This saying doing gap has gotta end. And that's kind of why I like uh the phrase being aggressive, because it says I'm erring on the side of doing. You mentioned something you did, I don't realize that you did it. I have something else in common with you that gravestone, that grave that you lied on in front of the altar at the monastery um, to replicate the posture of, of Luther when he got ordained as a monk. I heard that story because you told me that, and I immediately got on the freaking grave. I'm doing the same thing. I mean, I mean, the guy's DNA who was aggressively after God, the guy was literally right here, and his DNA at one point you could measure here, I'm in. I'm in, lie down, someone took a picture. And I was no judgment on anybody who didn't do that there. I just was surprising to me that nobody else actually would lie down on that stone. I'm like, man, you you folks just here to like learn things? I'm here to do things. There's so few, few of us as believers who are doing things. And that's what inspires me about the life of Luther, right? Talk about more of the stuff that he did, Stu, because it was crazy. Education, German language, yada, yada, yada.
1: Man, Luther changed just about everything there is to change. Um, What what really did he give us uh, as a a leader in our lives? And and that's why I I like to talk about the Luther experience when we go on these trips. He experienced the power of of, uh, uh, an external truth source in the Holy Scriptures. He gave us that, Mm, right? It's chained to the altar. It's uh, in Latin. It's inaccessible. He gives us the Bible as a truth source. He gives us ministry. Uh, first and foremost, he was a pastor. He, when, when people were fleeing from the black plagues at that time, you know, they went through their pandemics just like we did. Only They didn't have any answers. Luther stays there and he opens his monastery. He invites the people in. And Katie, his wife, who was a nurse, had nursing skills in her nunnery, takes care of the people. He is the father of modern day music in the church. He experiences the power he preaches to the people of a vocation that we're all little Christ. It's all a priesthood of believers. My calling as a priest is not any bigger or better than your calling as a mechanic or a stockbroker or a startup ministry. You're all called. We all have a vocational calling and every calling is valued by God. We're handcrafted and hand-shaped and handmade to fulfill a calling in our world. I want every person I know to know how holy and sacred is your gifts and your calling and your unique personality. It is your role as you fulfill it that makes the world go round. And you take a piece of that out and it doesn't work right. And the world doesn't work right. He gave that vocational calling to people. Hey, I love this part. He invents modern day marriage. He loves his kids. He adopts, he has six children and they adopt four more Brian, in the middle of a Reformation, when the whole world's on fire, he is a family man first. In fact, I think, and when you get there uh, to Wittenberg and we get into the tabletop room, then we get into the, into the living bedroom where they all live together, I think you see that first and foremost in Luther's life next to the Holy Scripture and Jesus Christ was his family, his wife and his children. He is a call to all men to get serious about the family to get serious about what it takes to invest in a family, not just as a role, but as a passion.
0: And an well, investment. he adopts, he adopts four kids. You said "I mean, the backstory of the four kids, which I learned yeah. from you, he adopts four kids because people are yeah. dying in the black plague. 50% of the population gone, right. gone, gone. He's adopting kids. And this is what really hit me. He's out serving people. I could see today. And I was convicted by this. I could see today where if a, a plague swept through the country, sorry folks, COVID wasn't a plague. It was awful. Some people died sooner than they should have. It was I'm, I'm not. It it wasn't a plague. It wasn't like influenza where you're coughing one night and the next day you're dead. You know, it was. It wasn't like the Black Plague were just sweeping through. It was, uh, it was a different deal. And I could see if I was actually in a literal plague situation, I could say, well, you know maybe the best thing for me to do is to keep myself healthy, keep myself se- separated from the masses, because, you know, Crossroads needs a steady hand at the helm, and I can't be putting myself at risk and maybe dying. That's not what he did. I mean, he got out and was, him and his wife were, like, wiping people's brow who had the plague. They were nursing, nurturing people. They lost kids, perhaps, as a result of that. That's man, that, this isn't some cleric who's an egghead. He's putting his life on the line. I love that and challenged by it.
1: You know, you're exactly right, because I have these feelings at times, you know, well, i got to protect myself because, uh, uh, you know, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, well, we'll bow down, but in our hearts, you know, to the gold nymphs, but we'll bow down. But in our hearts, we're going to be praying to our God, because what good are we going to be to God if we're dead? Yep. Right? So the wise move at that moment is just a to, to head bow, you know, get that, or, and then get back to ministry. Now, Luther's uncompromising. is the uncompromising man. And he stays there. Somewhere between half to two-thirds of the population of Europe died in the black Plague. Can you imagine that? And and imagine, there's no science. Nobody knows why it's happening or how it's happening or when it's going to stop. It just goes on and on and on. He lost friends, family members. He adopts four kids from relatives of his that had died. He takes them into his home. This is in the middle of the whole world is set on fire with the Reformation, how does he do that? The energy of this man, the the uncompromising single focus of this man is overwhelming to me. It's the power of a life yielded to God, the son of a coal miner with a
0: price on his head that yields himself to God. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's a product I use every day. I started taking AG1 because... I don't watch my diet too closely, but I know that I'm getting all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients I can, as well as hydrating with 12 ounces of water right off the bat at the beginning of the day. One scoop of AG1 has got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and it doesn't taste like it. It actually tastes great. AG1 is a microhabit with big benefits. For less than $3 a day, you can take care of your health and invest in your future. It's recommended by professional athletes, health experts, and me. (laughs) To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. So go get you some and let's get back to the show. This Reformation, he's trying to reform the church as we know it, and there, there certainly has been a lot of reformations that happened over the last many centuries, but um, ultimately Protestantism comes in, people who are protesting those early practices of the Catholic church, and therefore we get all the denominations and all that kind of stuff. And every denomination, Catholic or Presbyterian or Baptist, whatever, owes their Bible, if they're reading their Bible in their own tongue, they owe it to Luther. We saw that room where that happened. Tell us that story.
1: This is his here I stand moment. I call those when I say yes to God moments. This is the moment again where he could have said, what good am I to God if I'm dead? I'll make a brief compromise here. It makes sense that I can go back. I can, uh, I can go back and minister to my people and I could lead them to Jesus. So he's called before this diet. What's a diet? It's a court uh, sent by uh, Leo X in Rome, and all the nobles of Germany are there. There's a desk in the middle of the room, and he is asked, uh, if you are these your books? And he says, yes, they are my books. And then he's asked only one question. He wants to debate, but he's only asked one question. Uh, will you recant these books and everything that is in him? That word recant is revoco. He's asked one question, will you revoke these books at this diet, this court? And Luther, he doesn't know what to say because if he doesn't revoke them, he's going to be declared an outlaw and outlaws and heretics are burned at the stake. So he's going to get burned at the stake. He knows that just like John Huss 100 years earlier. So he doesn't know what to do next. And he's asked, will you revoke And he says, "Uh, I don't know. I need 24 hours to think and pray about this. I'm unsure. I'm unsure. And so they grant him 24 hours, and that's where he goes. And, uh, and he prays this great prayer at the Diet, and in the prayer, which we read the whole thing on the tour, he goes back and forth. He wrote the prayer down for, for us to be able to read it. You know, God, where are you? Are you going to protect me? Are you going to be around? Are you dead? Oh no! Then he gets you know faith again. No, you can't die. You'll be there. You've been. But but are you really there? I mean, I didn't plan on this. I, I I just want to go back to Wittenberg and I just want to live my little life. God, I don't want to. I don't want to be up here. He says in front of popes and emperors. I didn't plan on that. I want the simple life. I want the easy life. And he goes back and he goes, no, but I but but this is this is God's truth and God's called me to do this. So he goes back and forth with those kinds of questions that we ask. And finally, um, you know, it is begging, God help me. Amen. God help me. Amen. After all, only the body is concerned. The soul is yours and belongs to you. And it is with you. And it will remain with you eternally. My soul is going to be with you eternally. I'm not going to compromise on this. God help me. Amen. The next day, when uh, he is asked again what his response will be, he says to them, I I, I I can't compromise against the truth of the Holy Scriptures. It's wrong to go against my conscience. I cannot. So he says, and these are this phrase, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. And finally, he has that here I stand moment that I say yes to God, no matter
0: what. Moment. We went to a, castle that has a room that looked like the room where he would have been saying those words here i stand and in that castle there's a room that where the first bible was translated into the common tongue which was german and i didn't realize that he invented the modern day german language that still exists today tell us that story
1: yeah well after the diet he's got a free passage back to wittenberg Uh, But once he reaches Wittenberg, then he is declared is going to be a heretic and uh, he's free reign. Whoever captures him uh, can burn him. He knows he's going to die. He's going back to Wittenberg. And the ruler of uh, Saxony, where he uh, lived, that's the state in which Wittenberg was located, uh, has become a Christian at this point. And he comes and he sends some knights and some soldiers and they kidnap Luther outside of Eisenach. Germany, where Luther went to school, and he hides him out at the Wartburg Castle. It's old, it's falling apart, it's rotten, it's uh, it's not worth anything. Uh, Frederick believes this is the last place that anyone would ever look for Martin Luther. He grows a beard, he hides out, he hunts for himself, and he's he's up there. And, and this is another holy moment, you know, defining kind of moment in his life. He's hiding, He's afraid. He doesn't know what the future holds. He's separated from everything that he knows. He has nothing. But he says, Okay, God, I have nothing here. I'm hiding out. I've lost everything. The Reformation is over. So he asks God, What can I do to make a difference? And God says to him, however, he said it, You have. In your little room where you're hiding out, you have a pen and a paper. Use your memory. I'll get you a Bible in Latin, translate it from Latin into common German. And when he did, it changed the world. It took him 10 months to do that. He translated it. He got it out. People got it to Gutenberg. They printed a thousand copies. It, the price was one cow. It was a very valuable thing. People couldn't read. So in the process, when he gets back to Wittenberg, he realized he's got to start schools to teach the kids how to read so they can read the Bible, so they can teach their parents how to read the Bible, and they can read the Bible to the parents. So he starts the modern uh, school system. But Oh, yeah, just a little it, thing it like it that. Starts modern that. schools.
0: Yeah, that, 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 no yeah. big deal. Yeah, Yeah,
1: no big deal. But I got to teach these people to read. I mean, it's like, It's like how God works when we least expect it, when we have nothing. I got a pen. I got paper. Okay, maybe God can use this moment. Maybe God can use this as a holy moment to change people's lives. And you know what I loved about you laying on that gray stone there is if we don't look for these moments, they pass us right by. We never see it. Luther could have said, well, I'm just going to keep myself alive here. I'm going to get really depressed. You know, I'm going to drink a lot of beer. I hope nobody finds me. But he's saying, this is a moment God can use me. What do I have to be used? A pen, some paper, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in my mind and my heart.
0: Yeah, Amazing, man. I mean, you got all these Germanic tribes, don't have a very similar language, but different dialect. There's some discrepancies between them. and he just says, I got to invent a language here that all these people will understand enough to like their language and put the new Testament in that. And that's yeah. the standard for German today. That's what we know is German. Crazy. Yeah.
1: Right. He, he had to invent the church. Hmm. Okay. He gets back to Wittenberg. Um, all right. So now what are we going to do? Uh, okay. Let's have a, let's have a, let's get together. Okay. What, what should we do? Well, I know we should do something we've never done. We should sing. We should sing some songs. Only the priests are allowed to sing. They chant in Latin. Hey, let's. I'll, I'll write some music. I got a guitar. We'll get some drums, you know. We'll get some overheads. We'll sing. People are singing, first time in their lives. And he believes, you know, the gift of music to Luther was next to the Holy Scriptures. It was the greatest gift because it unites our souls and our spirits and our minds, one to each other, you and to me when we sing, and, and to God. So there's this triangle that takes place that's really powerful. He understood that music had the ability to change our emotions in a heartbeat. You know, you know, you like motorcycles, I like motorcycles. I got a CD on there. Man, when I'm cruising down the road on my Harley and I put on some Doobie Brothers music, there's just this big smile that comes over my face It changes my feelings and my attitude in a heartbeat. And he understood that the people needed to sing. It's a spiritual process and they needed to preach. So, so he takes and he puts a pulpit up over the altar signifying that it's more important, the preaching of the word is more important than the sacraments. How do we know about the sacraments? The word informs the sacraments. The word teaches us about the sacraments. So he says, okay, we're going to make preaching and teaching the major priority of the church service. I'm going to preach, and he preaches 2,000 sermons in a short period of time, two times a day, six to seven days a week, okay? And then we're going to have People get together in small groups and study the Bible, you know, and we're going to have community because there was no community in the church. Christianity isn't a solo sport like the the church has been telling us. It's a body of believers. It's It's people coming together in little platoons. So he invents that whole concept of the community of the church. I mean, this guy continues to invent and invent. Let's invent marriage the way well, it ought to
0: be. I think we're wetting people's appetite to say, oh, I got to look more into Martin Luther. Let me just uh, tell people what you're going to find. And I want you to speak to this, Stu. Uh, at the very end of his life, he pens some very, very negative things about Jewish people. Uh, sounds incredibly anti-Semitic. Tell us about that. Was he anti-Semitic? What took place there?
1: Yeah, great, great question. Uh, Most of his life, Luther supported the Jews and the mistreatment of the Jews by the church. As you know, the Jews were not permitted in the church. Uh, And and Luther said, no, we should. He wanted to love the Jews and the Muslims into the gospel and into the kingdom of God. He really felt that was a possibility. At the end of his life, he wrote a pamphlet where he was really angry at the Jews And he was angry because, uh, following on the teachings of Paul, that they had rejected Jesus. He was angry that they had rejected now the gospel that he was preaching. And so he wrote this scathing rejection of the Jewish people. Now, you got to put this in context. He wrote 110 volumes of work. And of all those 110 volumes, there is one pamphlet that I think is like a, a Twitter that he sent out or a Facebook post that he would really regret if he could come back. In fact, I often say, he didn't say revoco when they asked him, here I stand, you know, will you revoke your teachings? But I think he'd come back and revoke that pamphlet in a heartbeat because it got him into a lot of trouble. And, and, and really, we hadn't heard much about that uh, pamphlet until the Nazis in World War II. The medieval uh, Europe was a whole different place in culture than we think of today. And uh, it was a hard times and, and, and people killed each other and poisoned each other and uh, tortured each other and burned each other. There were plagues, there were witchcraft. It was kind of a crazy world. And in the midst of that, there was a great anger and fighting between the Jews and the Christians. And this really started in uh, 1096 with the First Crusade, when the Pope sent the Crusades to Jerusalem, to free Jerusalem. He wanted to free them from not only the Muslims, but the Jews as well. So the Catholic Church at that time, around 1,000, began to really reject the Jewish people. And that continued right through the period of Luther. So uh, Luther uh, is uh, trying to lead the Muslims and the Jews to Christ, and they're not coming and he knows there's this whole atmosphere of, of this anger and his hatred towards the Jewish people in the Catholic Church and the resentment tremendous resentment in Europe towards the Jews because they controlled much of the trade and the banking and the lending and so he's old and he's cranky and he's dying and he's sick and he writes this pamphlet now what's interesting about that is that it had virtually no effect and, and, and no real carry. Uh, in that day. I mean, it wasn't a very popular pamphlet. It didn't really last very long. And he was trying to point out, in my opinion, at the spiritual position of the Jews rather than as an actual physical people. During World War II, the use of this pamphlet by the Nazis was was, uh, very heavily used. But interestingly, after the war, not a single Protestant church has condemned or rejected Luther, and his works, his volume of works, as being anti-Semitic. He went through tremendous, enormous scrutiny by the church, but the church recognized him as a true reformer. And they did rebuke the pamphlet, but not Luther and his teachings. And I'm sure if he could come back today, he would have a big redo on that. So as far as we can tell, Luther's pamphlet had no effect on his people of that day. It's not his whole body of work. He has a much greater impact than that so I I sort of defend that because I think it's uh, people are trying people try to cancel him out because of that one pamphlet rather than looking at the full yep. body of work.
0: I, I think it's helpful to me. I, people can make their own decision whether or not that's good enough for them or not. Uh, I just think that yeah. we need to see there's exactly. there, there's more there than simply saying oh this guy said this let's cancel him. And We just love doing that because we we have a culture that's yeah. incredibly anti grace, and I think we need to do better than that. I think Luther is showing us a lot of how to live better. It's good stuff. Exactly. Th- that's one of the fascinating things for me when I went over to Germany with you is I never really saw before the correlation between Luther and the oppressiveness of the church in his day and the oppression that's been in Germany really seemingly forever, the oppression of their monarchy that got him into World War I, the oppression of Hitler— the oppression in East Germany of the communists. And I I couldn't help but think, if I was around during World War II, would I be one of the pastors, one of the Christians that went along with everything in the Nazi agenda and put Jews, you know, into death camps and all that stuff. We all like to think, oh no, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. But we say that because we've been indoctrinated, and I do have been indoctrinated positively. We've indoct- been indoctrinated with an anti racial agenda. And I mean those words positively. We need to have anti racial agendas. But I've been indoctr- indoctrinated in that. So if I took my current self, and stuck myself in 1939. I'm pretty confident I would have spoken out and died. I'm pretty confident uh, that that would have happened. But I, that's a Brian Tome that's been educated and inculcated with 21st century values, not a Brian Tom who lives in 1939. I was haunted by wondering, would I have stood up? Just like Luther said, here I stand. Would I have stood up? I, I'm not sure. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. I really wrestle with that. It's easy to, on this side of the war, you know, after it's all been dissected and uh, autopsies, but when you're in the middle of it and slowly but surely day after day after day, things are happening, you don't understand. You know, we we spend a whole day on at Buchenwald and talking about what happened from 1918 on in Germany. You know, Martin Niemöller, Uh, The German pastor uh, who stood up against the Nazi uh, revolution. You know his great quote. uh, He says, First, they came for the socialists, and I I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. I didn't speak out because I was not in a trade. Then they came for the Jews. I didn't speak out because I was a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak. And, uh, you know, if you step back in that culture from 1918 on, I I think. it would have been very, very difficult uh, to speak out. I, I I, honestly, if they came from me and my family and my kids, it's one thing for me to say, yeah, I would have done that for me. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Probably not. But, um, you know, as you know, uh, Paul Schneider, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there were people that made amazing statements and gave their lives at a very early age with families
0: for the sake of the Gospel Paul Schneider is a pastor I'd never heard of before at Buchenwald which is a work camp not a yeah. death camp with his Auschwitz which I went there as well but Buchenwald was a work camp and Paul Schneider uh, was a believer, and he wouldn't take off his hat during... Ha- he, he went into the work camp because he wouldn't raise his hand, Heil Hitler, and they said, you're out of here, you're going to the work camp, goes to the work camp, won't take off his hat because on Hitler's birthday. So they're like, you're out of the camp, you're in solitary confinement. He goes to solitary confinement, he's standing on his bunk, preaching out of his window as new inmates are bust in and trained in, and he's preaching to them. So they say, no, we can't have that. So they put a metal box over his window so they can't hear him, still doing it. They say, okay, you're just gonna die right now. I go, man, again. People who are standing against the tide. Uh, Stu, man, I'm just so thankful I went on that trip with you. I'm thankful that you asked. I'm thankful that you've made the aggressive move in your life of learning about Luther. And you're doing these tours. So just tell us, give us an advertisement for yourself. Someone wants to actually go and learn under the master and go on one of these tours or find anything more about you. How can they do that?
1: Hey, thanks, Brian. Yeah, how can people get in touch with us? Well, I, as you know, I'm so committed to the impact that this trip has on church leaders and, and church people that I want to take as many people as I possibly can on these tours. And uh, I want them to see and smell and touch and learn all about this person that God used to change history. So here's how to get a hold of me it's real simple. You can get a hold of me by email, Stu, S T U, at TheLutherExperience.com And I don't mind you talking to me personally Or you can go to our website Our landing page And that is TheLutherExperience.com And you can fill out a little form there And I will get back in touch with you I am really committed to this trip the best case scenario is a pastor or a church leader taking their team with them to get vision and inspiration and energy and equip them for living the bold life. So thanks for this opportunity to be able to share this story and this man and how God used him to change history and your life and mine.
0: Stu. Thanks a lot, man. This is great. You built into us a lot. We went uh, maybe a little bit beyond our normal time, but it was worth it because you really pushed us. And hey, hey folks, today, you got a lot of history. You got a lot of church history. We probably more history than ever done here at The Aggressive Life. Let's just make sure real clear about something. We're not into giving you information. We're not into giving you interesting thoughts. You only get information from us and you only get interesting thoughts in that it leads you to live an interesting life. And what does an interesting life look like? It looks like somebody who does something. It looks like somebody who stands for something. It looks like somebody who does something different than everybody else is doing. And that's what we see in Martin Luther. I'm inspired by him. I hope you are as well. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com, find my new book, Move, A Guide to Get Up and Go Forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.